everyone, Greg here. Welcome back to the Eater Upsell. It's season three, and that person that's sitting right across the digital table from me is none other than Helen Rosner. I'm your co-host on this magical audio journey. It's great to be back uh, podcasting with you, Helen. Heck yeah. We have an awesome third season of the Eater Upsell coming up. You will listen to it unfold over the forthcoming weeks. But today, Greg and I are super psyched to have with us in the studio a man who is basically the Batman of the food world. Yeah, it's Nathan Mirvold, who is this guy who worked in the tech world and the science world, and he made a gazillion dollars, and he put all his money into this lab in the science center so that he could learn more about food and how it all works and how you should cook it. So Nathan Mirvold is one of the forces behind Modernist Cuisine, the gigantic multi-volume, multi-hundred dollar cookbook that took the food world by storm a few years ago. And he has a, a brand new Modernist Cuisine edition coming out very soon. And it's all about bread. If you're into science or food or eating, I think that you might have some aha moment while listening to this. Yeah, I mean, that covers pretty much everyone who's listening to this. And if you don't think you're into food science, um, I have a feeling this conversation will change your mind. I found it incredibly illuminating. But first, Helen, there's something I wanted to chat with you about. Helen, do you have any Valentine's Day dining tips or expertise or any thoughts about this most unusual day when pretty much everyone in the world goes out to a restaurant? Um, It's funny you should ask that, Greg, because actually I, I've been thinking a lot about how Valentine's Day is a crypto food holiday. Ooh. Like, we think of it as the day of love. Yeah. But what it really is is the day of dinner. Mm. I think more than almost any other day, with the exception of Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day is totally about what are you doing tonight? And what are you doing tonight pretty much always begins with the question of where are you having dinner or if you're staying home, what are you cooking God, for dinner? That is so true. It's a... Uh... Yeah, it is really just like it's like Thanksgiving or something. It totally is, except Thanksgiving is almost always at home. Right. And, you know, people talk about how like New Year's Eve, like restaurants get slammed and like da da da. But like it really Valentine's Day is restaurant. Oh, no, day. my God. I um one year where I was working as a host at a restaurant, I remember that it was like they had every turn of that restaurant to the max. And also it turned into like a completely different restaurant on that one night because the chef was like, well, we got to serve the kind of shit people want to eat on Valentine's. Like we got to serve like steaks and lobsters. And I was just like, what is happening? It becomes this this whole production where almost every restaurant in the entire world suddenly has an identical menu to every other restaurant. And everyone's got like their chocolate souffle and everyone has something shaped like a heart. And then you have like the hipster restaurants that are serving actual heart. Oh, yeah. And Mm -hmm. It's a thing. It's like such a restaurant day. And many years ago, um, due to a combination of being a person who goes to restaurants all the time as part of my job and being a person who was in a very long relationship that showed no real sign of concluding, which it has not yet done, my then boyfriend, now husband, and I decided that we were opting out of Valentine's Day entirely. Oh, I love it. And so you guys you guys kept to that or that was just like a one year thing? No, we totally kept to it. I mean, we acknowledge that it exists and we sometimes talk about it. But, you know, we did a couple of really over the top Valentine's Day things early in our relationship mm-hmm. and they were fun, but they kind of felt like going through the motions. Though one Valentine's Day, we did the most perfect thing of all time, which I may or may not have talked about on this very podcast before, which is, okay, ready? Are you ready for this? You know how so many cool restaurants in the last few years have opened up in hotels? Oh, yeah. uh Uh-huh. So we pulled this amazing move. We really wanted to go to The Nomad, Mm -hmm. which is a restaurant in New York that I know we've talked about before on this show. And we wanted to go there. We wanted to have their famous chicken for two. And we wanted to have this dessert that they make. Mm-hmm. Milk and honey is a fantastic dessert. Actually, on our episode with Flynn McGarry, he talks about how that's one of his favorite restaurant desserts of all time. So we were like, we really want to do this. But also, that was a Valentine's Day that a new season of House of Cards was coming out. So this was fairly recently. And so I guess maybe we have not stuck to it perfectly. But we were like, shit, we want to go out for this fancy dinner. But we also want to just stay home and binge watch Netflix. So we called the Nomad to make a reservation. And it turned out that they were totally booked because everyone books dinner on Valentine's Day. And we were thinking to ourselves, what can we do? And we had this brilliant, genius insight, which was the Nomad is a restaurant in a hotel, also called the Nomad. So we booked a room at the hotel. And we ordered room service from the restaurant. We had the exact dinner we wanted to have, the chicken for two, the milk and honey dessert. And we ate it 
wearing bathrobes in a king-size hotel bed, watching five consecutive episodes of House of Cards on our laptop. Did you guys just have the best time? I mean, did you love it? It was the best. It was amazing. It was perfect. It was so perfect. Every year since then, we've literally done nothing. But it was so good that I think like we were just like, we don't need to do anything ever again. And also a good thing to keep in mind with Valentine's Day is that not only is it a day when the restaurants themselves get a sort of identity crisis, um, it's also a day that you could possibly describe as amateur hour in the sense that it is one of the times when people who don't often go out to restaurants definitely do go out to restaurants. Amateur diner hour. You know, it sounds very elitist and like, huh, I don't want to be rubbing shoulders with people who don't go out to 17 restaurants every week. But, you know, it's uh, it's it's a jungle out there. There's a lot of action going on. Stay safe, kids. Yeah. Have good Valentine's Day. And if you have a particularly great or a particularly terrible Valentine's Day, we would love to hear about it. Drop us a line at upsell at eater.com with your Valentine's Day horror stories or amazing stories or whatever it might be. Well, I think this is about as good a time as any to introduce our guest today, Nathan Miravold. Uh, welcome to the Eater Upsell Studios. Well, thank you. What's your favorite part of this new book? What's your favorite like segment? What's your favorite one of the 2,500 <laughs> pages? <laughs> well... Uh, you know, it, it, every page is our baby, and we sweat over uh, each and every one of them. But we've we've learned so much, um, some of which is of huge practical interest to people who want to make bread, and some of the things we learned are just like really cool. So w- what I'm curious about is af- after after uh, you know you published modernist cuisine and modernist cuisine at home, these huge hit books. Uh, I mean. I know that this is like a lot of work leading up to both these, the, you know, the publishing of these books and everything. But like, you know, I would think that you could probably maybe just kind of hang up your hat. I mean, these are huge books that everyone, you know, really admires. Chefs, I see these books on kitchen shelves all over, you know, New York City and everywhere else. Like, why did you decide for bread as the next as the next big project there? So, um, yeah, the, this is a polite version of the. What were you thinking? Question. I mean, I'm I'm stoked, but I'm just uh, you know I was I guess I was a bit surprised when I heard that it was going to be a, a bread book as the next the well, next installment there. So first of all, I love making these books. So we were going to make another big book. So what big book to go do? And the world of bread is interesting for the following reasons. One is it's one of the most basic human foods. And at one point in time, it was the primary source of calories for all of our ancestors. Uh, these days, it's a side dish, and but it's still something that's wonderful and loved and so forth. Bread is what I call a technique-driven food. So it, it's become popular to use the word natural sort of as a synonym for good, like, oh, yes, it's natural. Well, let me tell you, bread is not natural. It, <laughs> bread looks nothing like grain. Just compare the two. And in the same way that cheese is really not just old milk and uh, wine is not just spoiled grapes. Uh, in, in all three cases, humans over a period of at least 10,000 years, maybe 100,000 years, um, carefully figured out all these techniques to utterly transform um, the grain into this amazing thing we, we love to eat. Now, in the case of modernist cuisine, there were a bunch of chefs who were sort of determined to break all the rules. And so Ferran Adria and um, uh, Heston Blumenthal and Grant Ackett and Wiley Dufresne and a whole variety of chefs were out there. And so what we argued in modernist cuisine is we were out there to document uh, a movement that already existed. And strangely, in the case of bread, I was attracted to the opposite thing, which is in bread, uh, there was no nouvelle cuisine of bread. Instead, the bread movement that we're currently in started in the 1970s as the artisanal bread movement. And it was a total reaction to uh, industrial factory-made supermarket bread. And so people said, look, we want quality, not this crap. So... Let's go back to the old ways. Now, 
it was a fabulous thing because they made way better bread. And I'm thrilled it all happened. But because they were focused on let's go back to the old ways, the first thing that's interesting is, in fact, the old ways weren't like that at all. That ciabatta bread that every artisan bakery made was from 1985. It's completely ersatz. Um, the wonderful peasant breads that have high hydration with big open crumb like the fabulous bread that Chad Robertson makes at Tartine, entirely his invention. Um, we actually did a study of the trends in bread hydration, how much water you mix in the dough over time. And uh, high hydration doughs are a totally modern thing because they're a pain in the ass to deal with. If you're making bread as the main thing everyone eats, you don't make the hard to make dough. You, you make the easy dough. Right. You got to just like plow through with efficiency. So the world of bread had achieved a tremendous amount with this artisanal movement, but it had gone so far as to take new inventions like uh, the high hydration breads and pretend they were old. In Yet, the name of just being kind of rustic and, you know. Um, yeah, and, and the, way to, or the way to one-up yourself, if you're like with a bunch of bakers, you say, oh, you mean you buy your flour? I grind my flour. And the next guy says, well, huh, you use a gas oven, I use wood burning. And then it finally gets down to the guy who says, well, you, you bought your oven? No, I use stream mud and I grew the trees that I use in the wood. And it's like. Right. I am the Lord. I formed the earth. <laughs> right. The problem with that is that modern technology can help you do a better job. And also, when we looked around at the breads that are offered by artisanal bakers all around the country and around the world, there was a sameness that's a little distressing because people think, well, if I'm going to be an artisan baker, all I can do is – uh, my idea of what Europe's greatest hits were. I can do baguettes and batards and I can do my peasant bread and my miche and my – it's like, no, you're creative. You should do your own things. And of course, people had been doing their own things. I said uh, Chad's bread is totally his invention. It's not some throwback to a some bread of yore. Um, and so it seemed to me that whereas – with modernist cuisine, we were documenting a movement. With modernist bread, we're trying to start one or, or at least to demystify a lot of things and say, well, look, we did a bunch of tests and here's what it is or we looked up the history and here's what it is. And so it, it seemed like a really attractive thing to do. I'm just curious, Nathan, um, like what was like the first thing you got? What was the first food thing you got obsessive about and wanting to take it apart and understand what it was? When I was nine years old, I – found cookbooks at the local library. And it was so cool that I could actually learn how to cook and maybe learn how to cook better than mom and grandma. Um, and I decided I wanted to cook Thanksgiving dinner. So I got a bunch of books for the library and I cooked Thanksgiving dinner all by myself. And For your whole family? Yep. At the age of nine? Yep. That's extraordinary. I do, I, I do a better job now. <laughs> <laughs> but but I also would say the the job I did wasn't worse than anyone else in my family had done who were adults. <laughs> that's for sure. And uh, w one of the cookbooks I loved because, of course, I was a nine year old boy then, um, and somewhere down in deep inside I still am. But uh, was a book called The Pyromaniacs Cookbook because about flambéing things. I thought that was so cool that you could actually light things on fire. But you had to heat it up a bunch first so the alcohol would vaporize. And so I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I still think that's awesome, <laughs> right? Like who doesn't love lighting stuff on fire? For the second Thanksgiving I cooked, I took that a little bit to an extreme and we had a very special course, which I had under a cloche so I could reveal it. And the deal was while I did the reveal – I lit a firecracker, handed it to my brother who threw it under the table. So as I did the reveal, the firecracker went off. And boy, it scared everyone to death. You had such a sense of the theatrical. <laughs> um, that would – I wish you were around to defend me in the <laughs> aftermath. <laughs> that's an excellent argument. Well, no, I'm just – that's, that's – I, I think that um, when we – you know what we think about when we think about food like we think about the food itself but that is a 
presentation and context and like the I mean this this is some proto Heston Blumenthal stuff that you're doing you've got an audio element you're using the element of surprise like all of this contributes to flavor so um, then uh, one of the things that bugged me as a kid is I had heard that steam injected in the oven makes the crust crisp now this bugged the hell out of me because and you're still nine at this point right yes that's right I started making bread around then right and it's like, really? Steam? Really? How does that work? Shouldn't like water make it soggy? So it turns out now, you know, many, many, many years later, uh, people still didn't know why. There are two dominant theories and they were both easily disproven. So we set out one of our goals. We were going to figure out why. And I think we have actually figured out why injecting steam makes crust crispy. Are you going to tell us? Well, it's a little complicated, but here's the, here's the, the, the clues to it. Uh, bagels and bao. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, if you've had a good bao, the Chinese steamed bread, it's got a kind of a sheen on the outside, mm-hmm. and it's got a very thin skin. Okay. It's not crispy, of course, because it was steamed. Um, now, bagels also have a very thin skin, but they're very chewy. You'd never call a bagel crispy. That would be like a weird bagel. Um, bagels are steamed or boiled up front. And the, the main theories up to this point was that when you put the, the bread into the oven uh, and there was steam there, a thin layer of water would, uh, would condense and it would be like boiling water on the outside. So it's like you were boiling the outside, and that would cause starch in the flowers to gelatinize, and that would make it shiny, and it would make it crisp and chewy. But if that theory was true, then actually bao and especially bagels ought to be really crispy. Okay. Now, bao and bagels are shiny, so the shiny part of that was right. And it turns out that you have to – it's a more complicated explanation that we're still – working on the pages to try to explain. But uh, the way heat transfer works in the bread actually keeps the crust super thin once you form that skin. So a, a baguette that goes into an oven, you instantly inject steam when you put a, a baguettes in the oven. And for the first minute or two or three, it's actually like a bow. It's being steamed. And it forms a skin very much like that thin skin you see on the bow. And there, there's a whole reason why, but I can get into that, but it's – it's, well, fundamentally, it's hotter. Believe it or not, it's steam in the oven makes the oven seem hotter to the bread than if it was just air. Is this related to why um, you slash baguettes before you cook them? Um, Does that help break that skin that forms? Well, so yes, you have to break the skin. In fact, so there's a whole set of breads that you score or slash. And the reason you do that is that as the bread is cooking – uh, or baking, it continues to expand. And bakers call that oven spring. An oven spring is quite substantial. Now, as it makes that expansion, if there's a, if there's a, a completely hard or, or you know, impermeable membrane, that will either limit the expansion uh, or it will do what's called a breakout, where it will all of a sudden explode off in one direction and look really weird. So bagels, you steam for much longer than you would a baguette. And that makes an impermeable membrane which doesn't get broken because you don't slash the bagels. And that's why bagels are so dense and have such a dense crumb. Because they can't expand. Correct. You constrained them. That's ex- this is blowing my mind right now. Everything yeah, is making sense. I've never thought about sense. that before. That's, that's very interesting. <laughs> the world of bread just became so much more understandable to me. Like, <laughs> well, good. <laughs> it's working and, already. <laughs> well, that's that is our simple goal. Um, now, admittedly, because we kept we did this on essentially everything, that's why the book is twenty five hundred pages long. And of course, we also have eighteen hundred recipes, and you know, on and on and on. But all of these things have really basic, simple explanations once you get down to it. And understanding that, that then really helps people to say, okay, I, I get it. I understand why that's, that's true. Um, a brioche, you don't slash generally. 
you can, but you don't have to because the crust, because of the fat in there, is more pliable. But so we think of bread as being a little fluffy, right? Yeah. How, most, da how dense is it compared to other things? It floats, right? Very good. <laughs> bread floats. That's that's about as far as I'll go. It's so what do you think has a higher density, bread or whipped cream? Uh, my guess would be bread, but because that's my guess, I'm going to assume that it's actually whip, whipped cream, right? So the the most dense, heaviest thing is whipped cream by far. So most good – most breads – it depends on the variety of bread. If you have a super dense pumpernickel or those Danish breads that they make the uh, open-faced sandwiches on, that stuff's pretty heavy. But um, a brioche or sandwich bread is half the density of whipped cream. And like, like good whipped cream. Like we're not talking ready whip, which floats away like a balloon, well, right? Like, it, like heavy cream, real whipped cream, right? Even ready whip. Really? It's, yeah. It, uh, whipped cream has got some variations in uh, – if you have fully whipped whipped cream, it tops out at a certain uh, – Because otherwise it becomes butter, right? right. It separates. <laughs> certain point it will separate and become butter. If you do it earlier than that, uh, very soft whipped, then it's quite dense. Wow. So it, it, in fact, whipped cream generally has a density of about 0.49. Water has a density of 1.0. So fundamentally, whipped cream is, a, cream is about half air. Um, interestingly, most ice cream is too. Is this why it's creamy instead of having like the brick-like well, like of a, an ice cube or something? This is why it's you can yes. stick a spoon in it, right? So it, ice cream makers call this overrun. And most ice cream is about 100% overrun. That means it's 50% air. So that's the other thing. Bread is way lighter than ice cream. Now, I, because we think of ice cream as being heavy, that doesn't impress people, but ice cream is a lot like whipped cream, actually. And one of the reasons this uh, fools you is bread is more solid. You need a knife to cut bread. You don't need a knife to cut whipped cream. But that has nothing to do with the density because the bubbles in bread are bigger. That's why. There's more bubbles and they're bigger. And that's because the structural stuff of bread, the walls of those bubbles, is stronger than in whipped cream. That's why you couldn't That's make it you work. Make bigger bubbles. Right. Otherwise, the bubbles would collapse, which happens if you try to over whip cream and then it turns into butter, as you said. I really love what happens inside my head when I start thinking about science. <laughs> so when you finish one of these books, uh, do you feel a sense of relief or do you feel like uh, – are you like nervous about how people are going to – receive it and I mean I know that there are people that are critical of your work sometimes. I mean how do you how do you sort of like understand that process? Well uh, of course the the process starts even before you're finished. <laughs> um, we're not totally finished with the book yet, uh, but it'll go on on um, pre-sale so we'll see you know if no one orders it we will be a sad crying lot as we finish the last pages and send it off to the printer. People are going to uh, order it, though. People always order. I mean, people go crazy for your books. I hope so. I hope so. I, you never know. Um, you know, in terms of critics, I found in general that the people who are most critical of my books uh, are people who've never read them. Um, there was a guy in the UK who went by this pseudonym and he had this blog. And he – when the book was first announced, he wrote these – blog articles, and then I did a whole series. This guy was really worked up. No book could be worth that <laughs> and all this. And I, I, it, I remember talking to him on the phone. I said, look, this kind of pisses me off. It's fine if you say my book is not worth that. That's your, your opinion. You might want to actually see it first before you make that. But when you say no book, you're like insulting all knowledge. You're saying that knowledge is not valuable. And by the way, why don't you price the textbooks that your doctor bought at medical school, those weren't cheap. And thank God he needed to know that shit or she needed to know it to treat you. Did you reach out to that blogger? Did you say, I want to talk to you or did they reach out to you? Um, somehow we got a, We talked on the phone a couple of times and, and he wasn't mollified. So then the book actually came out and I was in the UK and we were doing some things and this guy comes up to me at one of the events and he says, hi, I'm that guy. I was wrong. 
That doesn't happen very often that you get that that moment. <laughs> it's know? true. But, it, you know, the idea, like the the notion that a cookbook could be $625, which is the list price of modernist cuisine, and the bread book is going to be similar because it's a similar size, um, that offended some people. Uh but then I say, wait, you, you know, you, you look at what a meal at one of the great restaurants on planet Earth costs, and it's expensive. Uh, we have a thing in a sidebar in the book somewhere that talks about uh, this thing that we want more expensive bread. And it, there was a lot of press that a restaurant um, in New York got uh, for having a bread course that was $15. And people were scandalized and outraged. And there's a woman in San Francisco that started artisanal toast for like $5 for a slice of toast. Again, people were outraged. And to me, this is just so silly. You, you know, if you look at pasta, noodles, that was once considered really cheap food. But today in New York City, we could go and we could pay any amount of money for a plate of pasta. We could pay a couple dollars. Or we could pay $100. Now, the $100 pasta would have uh, lobster and it would have sliced truffles and some other stuff on it. But it's still that. Risotto, the same thing. You, you could pay $50 for a plate of risotto, but it's, it's just rice. No, we've decided as a society that if you do a good enough job, and we'll get really picky if you're, the job isn't good enough, and so lots of restaurants go under. But if you do a good enough job, hey, we're cool with that. But bread, we have this funny feeling that bread ought to be like really cheap. Or free. It should be like free, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the part that uh, kind of is, I view as almost scandalous, <laughs> which is in almost every part of the food system, quality means two things. It means, A, you have to pay a little more for it, and B, that someone has figured out how to get that quality all the way from the person who grows it. So when I was a kid, mom bought Folgers coffee. You can still buy Folgers coffee, but we can buy, we could buy, I'm sure there's somewhere in New York that has $500 a pound Kopi Luwak coffee. Almost certainly. That's and, the coffee that is extracted from civet cat poop, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Yum. <laughs> um, but at every price, we, we'd find coffee at every price point, and that's a wonderful thing. And some would be from Ethiopia, some would be from Guatemala, some would be from this place or, the, or that place. Wine, the same thing. So uh, wine has been on that track for a long time where the famous vineyards that have the best grapes and the best varieties and the best climate get to charge a lot for their wine. But we still can buy two-buck chuck or, or, or things uh, uh, of that sort if that's what we want. Um, chocolate, same deal. Mm -hmm. Chocolate, when I was a kid, was always Hershey's. Now we've got all kinds of single-origin specialty chocolates. Well, bread is something that our society relentlessly tried to get to be cheap. And oh my God, did we succeed. Wheat is cheaper than dirt. <laughs> like literally. Okay, it's uh, 10 cents a pound. Yeah. So if you take a loaf of bread, whether it's artisanal bread from your local thing or supermarket bread, the amount of your money that went to the farmer is about five cents. And that farmer is making the very best wheat that five cents can buy. Now, that's screwed up. OK, I can buy fancy butter. You know, from organic things, blah, 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 blah. I can get all of the rest of my foodstuffs or all of this. But the way we've made structured the agriculture system has made – if a guy wants to say, well, I'm going to make better wheat and I'm going to charge 15 cents, it's very hard for that guy to survive. Um, that hasn't happened yet. And that's something that I would love to see happen is that we broaden – the varieties of bread all the way back down to the farmer. Uh, and if we don't, we're going to – even if we buy from the local artisanal guy who's got a lot higher costs than the big industrial guy. So that loaf is going to cost us two or three or four times as much as the supermarket loaf. 
but the chances are he's buying the same flower or pretty close to the same flower. So are you going to tackle the farm bill next? Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think like, you know, these are huge, like institutionalized governmental cultural issues that I think, you know, once anybody starts looking at it for any amount of time, they realize how broken this this economic and, and production structure is. But it, it is. But, you know, the things it. I don't like the, – the part that I don't subscribe to is blaming a conspiracy of others because we didn't get better single-origin chocolates because the government gave them to us. But chocolate's not a staple, right? Like flour underscores so much and, and I think – Maybe it's not a conspiracy in the sense of a, of, a, of a small group of people making like directed intentional action towards this outcome, but it is something that is the result of like many, many decades of cascading policy. Oh, of course. Absolutely. But if we demand better and we demand better of our bakers and bakeries that we get our bread from and they demand better of the millers and the millers demand better of the flour – and instead of buying commodity flour or commodity wheat, we'll seek out the things. That's what happened in wine and coffee and chocolate. We can absolutely make it happen. And I think it's way more practical to think about how we can create a great bread movement and a great wheat movement than it is how we can change the farm bill, which is so mired in so many decades and centuries of you know, bizarre politics and institutionalized semi-corruption and blah, that's that's so hard to try to fix that all at once but hey we've gotten much better food in every other part of our diet yeah I by taking some personal action and some personal responsibility and i think that's what's Im important here so this i mean this is this is activism you know i think like the, there is there is what what you're talking about is is bread and, and sort of returning to bread and thinking of bread in a clearer and truer way as something that if you do it right, it inevitably results in something that is effectively activism. Well, I think it is – you know, we have – most of our efforts to date in food activism or in foodieism or demanding better food have been at the top of the pyramid, wine and chocolate and coffee – Luxuries. Well, coffee is kind of a staple, but <laughs> coffee is an addiction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah. um, and wheat, this is tackling the biggest of the big. Okay, this is the the base of the food pyramid. It is this ginormous industry. And look, they should keep making. I, I'm not trying to say, oh, we should stop having wheat farming um, uh, or any of those other things. But I'm sure there are farmers who would like to grow better varieties. Uh, Steve Jones in Washington State, by coincidence, the guy doing the most interesting wheat breeding in the world is like an hour and a half from us. <laughs> and so we've collaborated with them quite a bit. Uh, you can use modern selective breeding to make better varieties of wheat that taste better. You know, why should I go and have my uh, special organic small farm made butter and spread that over bread? made with utterly commodity wheat. That's a good question. And we also have to release bread from being a staple. Part That's of that thing is that if you keep – if you insist and you say, oh, yes, bread is a staple and it's something we have to do for everyone, but ba ba Well, that's part of what draws it into this political maelstrom that it can't get out of. And if you say, no, actually, bread is an important food, but it's a side dish. I mean, and it's, it's not great to eat a lot of the bad stuff, <laughs> you know. It's not great for your yes. body. No, well, it, it, and it, we we found this great. Um, I, I love going on eBay finding old ads. It, it gives you some insight into um, the mentality of of not only not ancient times, but like you know, just a few decades ago. We found this great ad from a flower company. I think it was from the nineteen forties, uh, and it said. Eat more bread. Consider making it 50% of your, your diet. Oh, my God. <laughs> and of course, you said it today, you think, 50% of your diet? And the other 50% is cigarettes. And... Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe if you're like a quarry laborer. I mean, like, that's, that's, that's huge. Well, but uh, all of our ancestors 
did at some point in time, depending on exactly who your ancestors were, that could have been relatively recently or could have been 200 years ago. But they did live on bread and porridge and other kinds of foods as the bulk of their calorie consumption. Um, so if we release bread mentally from being this pillar of all these things and say, yes, I'm willing to spend more for it. Yeah, you know, if if I can spend, you know, twenty five dollars on a plate of risotto or pasta, which is not expensive by New York standards at all. There's, I'm not talking about the top places. This is the, well, I ought to be able to, to willing to spend that for an equal serving of bread. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Coming back to the restaurant thing about places that are charging for bread, or um, what is it like? Um, you know, places that have like fancy butter preparations with bread we assume that we're paying for the butter but you know the uh the bread you know is not doesn't grow on trees you know it's the emotional thing i think you know it just really we is. have like, a strong we emotional from it. absolutely but i think we have to if we care about bread yeah well so so working in the cooking lab and working on this bread cookbook is not your full-time job <laughs> well, no, it's, it's it's only like, you know, 80 hours a week or something. Which is it's like just nothing. like a little part-time there deal. There's so many other hours besides <laughs> that. But so but you work on a lot of things. So the cooking lab is part of Intellectual Ventures, right? Which is your is it a, a company? What's the Yeah, it's a company. Okay. <laughs> Which um does a lot including what was it I was just reading about the other day, nuclear reactors. Right. Well, so we actually design and build nuclear reactor components, um, you know, just in the next space over from our cooking lab. Sure. That's another form of cooking. Yeah, just it's all one complex. Well, <laughs> so I like working on interesting, cool things. And in this case, we've invented a, new, a fundamentally new type of nuclear power reactor, which is fundamentally safer and way more scalable. And it's one of the things that I think society has to look at if we want to tackle global warming. Uh, you know, to date, the world has made essentially zero progress on global warming. The CO2 level in the atmosphere keeps going up year after year. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's great to talk about renewables. It's great to talk about a bunch of these other things. But one of the things I think you have to consider in the mix is uh, nuclear. Now, it's not the only thing. We have other energy projects at our company. Uh, we also encourage the whole world to have other projects. But, you know, the technology industry that I've come from is about doing impossible things. Uh, the progress we've made in hardware and software and networking is so shocking, it's crazy. Uh, and we've been, all been the beneficiaries of that to a very large extent. Uh, f to solve problems like ener our, our huge energy problems, which are even more mired in politics and things than – I mean imagine a world where we didn't actually care about oil. That would release tensions in all kinds of places. Yeah. Imagine a world where China didn't have to worry about it. I mean it's not just us worrying. It's all the rest of the world worrying. Uh, it, you know, the – uh, Americans have, on average, across the whole population, we use about 11 kilowatts. That means it's like we had a, 10, 11 toasters running 24-7. Per your, person. Per person. Okay. That's your total energy. Now, you might be in the low end. Somebody else might be in the high end. But as a society, that's what it is. Uh, and it's all forms of primary energy. If you look at the world average... It's about 2,500 per person. Yeah. And if you look at China, China happens to be right at the world average right now. They're about 2,500. And the thing is, this century, China wants 11,000 like us. They want our lifestyle. Meanwhile, our lifestyle is going up, not hugely quickly, but it, you know, right now there are millions of hard disks uh, at Facebook and Google and Microsoft and other places, all spinning, waiting for one of us to type in a query or post a thing. And that takes a lot of power. So we continue to add more power to our lives. And 
But if you, if you think about the world in, in the terms of saying, well, the 2,500 is going to go towards 12, you know, 11, 12,000. Uh-huh. We're not talking about just today's energy system. We're talking about taking the energy system up by a factor of five. Which requires thinking about it differently. It does. And if you don't, you in, in the very short run, you can say, oh, you know, put in LED lights and shut the lights off and unplug your cell phone charger. Meanwhile, China and the rest of the world is trying to get our lifestyle. They're making great progress. We can't stop them. Um, morally, you could argue whether we ought to try or not, <laughs> but we're not going to stop them. So we have to solve that big energy problem. That's where I think nuclear comes in. But we also do lots of uh, research for things in the third world. Um, literally across the hall from the, the kitchen, um, we have work on new diagnostics for polio and TB. We have um, a big disease modeling program. We make containers for uh, to keep vaccines cold in Africa. So it's a nice – it's a cool place to work. So you you personally have been – I, I guess I want to say like a man of obsessions. I think I first – you first crossed my radar. Is that the right metaphor? What do you do to a radar? You first came onto my radar um, when I was reading um, about your interest in dinosaurs. Yes. Which was – this was maybe a decade or so ago that I think I was reading something about this. And then – resurfaced again with modernist cuisine. And so how do you how do you go from dinosaurs to cooking to nuclear reactors to is it all? I mean, are you still deeply involved in dinosaurs? In fact, just last week, I got news from a scientific journal that my latest really big dinosaur paper had been accepted for publication. So the next few weeks, I'll have another big dinosaur paper. Congratulations. So I keep working on dinosaurs. And now also asteroids, right? Yes. I I have done a lot of work on asteroids lately. Um, I'm uh, In a couple of weeks, I'm speaking at two conferences the same week, and it's a little awkward to shuttle back and forth. And one is the American Astronom uh, Astronomical Society Division on Planetary Sciences, where I'm talking about asteroids. And the other is the Vanity Fair Conference. And I think I am the only person speaking at both. So what's the thread? Like, wh wh what is it um, in your head that – are these things all sort of scratching the same itch? Like, are these lines <laughs> of inquiry all kind of turning you on in the same way? Or is it is it a variety of – intellectual stimulations. That was very sexual. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you're asking what floats my boat. Um, you, you know, I love all the things I do. If I didn't love them, I wouldn't do them. But what's the difference between something you love and something you don't love? Is there something all the things you love have in common? Well, there's some big differences. I mean, the way I do cookbooks is as a team. We have a team of people, and I feel you do a much better book as a team. Now, that's weird because in general for novels, the quality of a novel goes down dramatically if there's more than one author. Mm -hmm. you just There aren't any novels that are great that are written by four people. It just doesn't, doesn't seem to happen. Well, software is a little different. And so I've always argued within the world of software that the best software is written by a small team. When you get a really huge team like you have to for the giant programs that are around, it gets unwieldy and it gets a little uh, cumbersome. But if you have a small team of great people, each one tries to make their area and their expertise great. And so uh, our team, there are people trying to make their part of the book not only great but maybe better than I would, um, even better than I would even want. But oops, they already did it. And so, OK, that's really cool. We'll do that. Um, and so my books are that way. They're a, a team thing. The research on some of the stuff is usually only me and another person or two. Um, but I, I love the collaboration. I love the team. And that allows us to do stuff at this scale. Um, I do scientific collaboration with my science papers. But they're, they tend to be much smaller things. They tend to be um, – things that where I'm doing a huge amount of the primary work. So I did not bake every loaf of bread for this project. Wait, um, what? I know. <laughs> I know. It's Now comes the, uh, the, hard the ugly truth. truth. 
<laughs> um, you know, during the core part of the bread development, so for most of those three uh, years, we went through a pallet of flour every three weeks. That's a thousand pounds. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're. But that's what it took. So, do you guys have any immediate plans after this book is released? the The lab? Are you going to start working on another book, or is are you you know just going to keep? Oh, we'll probably spend a few days sleeping because <laughs> the very last files to go out, we have all of there's. We work very hard, um, but of course, we'll do another book. And you haven't decided what that that book is going to be about yet. No, we usually we'll throw some ideas around. Um, it. it uh, you know, it's not lost on us what everyone else has realized that we didn't do pastry and dessert in modernist cuisine. And so everyone thought that was going to be our next book. Um, and uh, of course, Francisco uh, Migoya, who's uh, head chef and my co-author on the project, uh, Francisco is a pastry chef, so he'd love to do pastry, and I'm sure at some point we'll do pastry. But exactly what we do next, we, we, I, we like to have a little bit of kick the tires time and and figure out what what to do about it time. Um, we've also evolved over this course. You know, when we first did um, uh, the book, uh, I remember when we first had to slip the schedule, we had to sort of publicly announce on Eater and other places we were slipping and. And I remember being a little bit um, – having a little bit of an attitude about it. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's the first 2,500-page cookbook that we've done. <laughs> and I was like, of course, it's the first 2,500-page cookbook Earth has done too. <laughs> but but hey. and But this is now our second and we've done uh, a couple of the books, other books in between. Uh, so that uh, – we're getting to understand it better. And understand the process, all the processes of what we have to go into. Um, we all, but there's still surprises. You know, we had a huge surprise on this book quite late in the the process, um, which is to me scandalous. Um, there's no good rye bread in the United States. No is, true rye bread because there's no good rye flour in the United States. Is this the scandal? This is the scandal. Okay. We are going to rip the lid off this rye conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> There's that evil laugh. <laughs> um, so where did you have to go to get the good rye bread? So there's a lot of uh, – rye doesn't have gluten in it. It's got some other proteins that will upset some celiacs, but it doesn't – they're not like gluten. They don't form these nice uh, balloons that make red rye. So rye bread fundamentally works a different way. It works because of a set of molecules called pentasans, which absorb lots of water and they swell and they make it sticky and that makes a, a rye dough. Well, because of that, virtually all fluffy breads that are rye are not rye breads. Those are wheat breads that are rye flavored. And that's what we've taken to calling them. So. But they have a little bit of rye, right? Like a little bit of rye. It's not like artificial rye flavor. No, but uh, most American rye breads, if you ask for rye toast in the morning at at some diner. Yeah, you get a soft, fluffy thing that has that slight nutty flavor. 20%. Wow. Um, you know, traditional New York Jewish deli rye, maybe 30%. And when I traveled in Europe, I would find see these rye breads that, that were great, that were darker. And I assumed that's what they were. Uh, I'd also see some really dense rye breads like you find in Denmark that uh, I basically call a grain pate. Uh, you know, it, it's a bunch of coarse grains stuck together. And it's wonderful. I, I don't mean to denigrate it, but it's not fluffy bread. Mm -hmm. So we had an Austrian baker who was – passing through Seattle and said, hey, can we stop for a couple days and show you guys how to make our bread? And we said, oh, that'd be great. Hmm. Well, they were so mad. They couldn't make their bread. They couldn't make their bread. And they kept saying it was the flour. And they made bread that we thought was actually tasted pretty good. But they were like, oh, my God, this is shit. We would never do this. This is horrible. <laughs> so it turns out that this is a flour problem, like a U.S. rye flour problem. So two years went by between them going there. And we were corresponding back and forth. And finally... I was in Germany for something and they said, we will ship you some of our flour to Berlin if you will take it home. So I had to go through customs 
through a whole series of reasons in Miami with 250 pounds of rye flour. Fun. <laughs> hey, it worked. <laughs> the dog sniffed it. And they, they, they <laughs> you were just like, I swear to you, this is not weird brown coke. Like, <laughs> Well, on that note, Nathan, it is time for us to move to a thing we like to call the lightning round. Okay. So for this lightning round, we are going to be turning it over to Matt Buchanan, our features editor. Hey, Nathan. This is Matthew Cannon, the features editor at Eater, and I have some lightning round questions for you. What food or food-related thing would you uninvent? Huh. What food would I uninvent? Boy, boy, I'm going to be so terrible at this. This is like lightning and there's no thunder. <laughs> I'm not, not, we have not helping. You. you can bring the thunder. <laughs> yeah. Bring the thunder. Let's rephrase this to be, to be lower stakes. Um, what food... What is your least favorite food? Bad food. Crap. That's but not fair. I know it's not fair, but uh, so I don't eat very much highly processed food. I don't want to say you should uninvent it because I'm also aware that like I, I, my, my mom was a single mom and she was working and I did eat a lot of that growing up. And I couldn't have said, ah, yes, mom, you should stay home and make organic, wonderful meals for me. That, that would have been... Absurd and and elitist and and crazy, you know, it's sort of like the. To me, some of the critiques of our food system that forget convenience, particularly for people who aren't terribly affluent, uh, it, it's sort of the let them eat cake thing, which, by the way, A. Marie Antoinette probably didn't say, but what it was written in French that she said was let them eat brioche, which is not cake. But it got translated by some early Brit to cake because they didn't have brioche in England. Well, it's a much more cutting burn of the lower classes if it's cake. So <laughs> <laughs> the narrative is stronger that brioche. way. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Matt's third. Artificial part. vanilla. Art really? Artificial oh. vanilla. We got something. Okay. Yes. Artificial vanilla. Why? Because it gives vanilla such a bad name. It, it's, <laughs> uh, it winds up uh, getting people to think they know what vanilla tastes like. And they don't because real vanilla is just so much better. Yeah. Synthetics are weird. We could probably spend another two hours on synthetics here. <laughs> but, all right. Let's let's go on to the next lightning round question from Matt. Okay. How would you go about making a fake meat product today? Hmm. Well, <laughs> so you have 30 I, seconds to answer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I've tasted all of the current crop or pretty all the ones I know about. And they always say, oh, you can't tell. Um, and oh, bullshit, you can totally tell. Oh my God. And, and I have a quarrel with the whole idea of fake meat. Okay. Um, in a sense, it would be great if you could relieve people's cravings for meat with something else. But throughout all of history, people have invented many fake meats. Okay. The first fake meat is called sausage. Now, of course, it's still meat, but it was taking inedible parts of meat the fat and the, the stuff that was too tough, and turning it into something that was sort of like an artificial filet mignon. It was tender. It had, was fat. It had flavor. Cheese was, for many societies, an artificial meat. Tofu was an artificial meat. And guess what? The way each one of those things found its success was not as an artificial meat. It was as its own thing. So when I was a kid, tofu was unknown outside of Chinese restaurants and not even all of them. It was hard to get. It was this weird, exotic, crazy food. We all eat tofu now. But we don't eat tofu thinking, oh, there's a, I'm going to tuck into that tofu filet. No, we eat it because it's tofu and it's its own thing. Yeah. And totally. so the, 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 the philosophical question I have for the fake meat people is until they're essentially perfect, they should give it the hell up and stop doing it. Like the, the, the most recent fake meat, which had been heavily promoted to me, a friend of mine, um, very famous technology guy, had tasted So I couldn't tell the difference. I said, yeah, okay, well. <laughs> Maybe that's I a love problem you. with you. I love you, but <laughs> I'm going to bet. And it, it, it has this – if you told me that it was a sweetbread burger, I actually might have believed you. Sweetbreads are very mild flavor. There's not much flavor 
to a, a sweet bread. They have this kind of a weird texture. They're the tofu of the cow. Pretty much. Uh, and so this fake meat product seared nicely. They got a nice sear, as you can get on, on some stuff. And if you told me it was a um, sweet bread burger, I might have believed you. But the thing is, uh, and I discussed this with a, a chef in the Bay Area who's worked with it extensively. We both agreed like, oh, my God, just put it in a different dish and call it something else and uh, and it would be fine. It would be great. But what you, you kind of set it up to fail when you go to that goal. Yeah. And I, I talked to the founder of one of these uh, fake meat companies and he had – oh, my God, does this guy have invective against the meat industry? I mean it's like this torrent of negativity and it's like, OK. Good luck with that because until you can make it perfect or, or, or a whole lot closer than you currently have, you're fooling yourself. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet, look, I totally agree that we need as both for our own health but also for the health of the planet moving away from meat as as large a component of the diet as, as it is in some places would be a great thing. So are you doing it a disservice by saying it's fake meat, telling people they can't tell the difference, and then having them be disappointed? Is that a good thing for the planet? It's very unclear. I like that answer. That's a very yeah. good answer. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is hardly lightning round, but keep going. Yeah. I, I'm... It's very slow lightning. <laughs> it's leisurely it's lightning. rolling lightning. <laughs> it's like a it's, quiet it's storm. It's 6,500 FPS lightning. So, Okay. If you open a modernist cuisine restaurant, how much would you have to charge for dinner in your best estimates? <laughs> so uh, we actually do dinners at our lab. Um, you know, when the, the book first came out, we had this sort of a street cred problem where lots of chefs says, yeah, well, who, where's their restaurant? Um, uh, and then when chefs saw the book, they stopped saying that because when they saw the book, they thought, oh, shit, you couldn't do a restaurant and write that thing? Oh, my God, is that a lot of work? But people still ask that. So we started doing uh, a set of dinners where we would invite some of the best chefs in the world, some food writers. Helen, you've been to one. I went to one back and? way back when. It was amazing. It was really incredible. So we cook a 29-course dinner for that. Um, when we cook for civilians – that is to say people who are not chefs or food writers. Um, we usually cook only like 15 courses. I'm doing a dinner on Wednesday night, um, which is for a bunch of people from Silicon Valley and around the world, not food people particularly. Um, and we do all kinds of science demos. It's kind of a cool thing. Dinner and a show. Pretty much. Um, so my usual answer though is – as a producer of cookbooks, I'm already familiar with one capital-intensive, labor-intensive, money-losing industry. I don't need to go into a second. Okay. <laughs> Yet. And there are wonderful chefs out there that make modernist cuisine, make dishes which I would classify as modernist cuisine. That doesn't necessarily mean they learned it from my book, but – and at all price points. Um, I was at a barbecue joint in a food court in Hawaii and I got this barbecue and the texture was such I knew it wasn't cooked normally and I asked the person on the counter, I said, oh yeah, the chef, um, he does this thing called sous vide. <laughs> uh -huh. So you yeah. can do it at anything but if I actually did a restaurant, um, I I'm afraid I would make it as over the top as I make my book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's kind of what I time. do. So I think this is one of those, like, if you have to ask how much it costs, you yeah. probably can't afford it. All right. Let's go on to our next question. Have you ever cooked for Bill Gates? If so, what was it and what did he think? So um, I've cooked for Bill many times. In fact, he's coming this uh, coming Wednesday for dinner. Uh, and uh, uh, he likes all of our food. I, I think he particularly likes the pastrami dish. Um, he also really likes the carrot soup. The carrot soup is the one with the baking soda in it, right? Yes. This is this is the modernist cuisine recipe that I actually make all the time. So the origin of that was a kind of bread. Really? Pretzels. So 
pretzels get really brown on the outside because you dunk them in a solution of lye. And the browning reactions, called the Maillard reactions that make food brown, um, happen at a lower temperature in an alkaline environment. Oh. And so that's how pretzels are made, only we've come up with a vastly better way to make them, but that's an aside. So I was wondering, well, if it works for pretzels, it's got to work for other stuff. So we started pressure cooking things with uh, baking soda instead of lye in them. And oh my God, the carrot soup came out great. <laughs> it just makes it so incredibly intense and savory and rich in a very... Well, and uh, you know, the classical French chefs uh, would make soups by starting with a like a chicken stock and then you add... And it's delicious, okay? So they would make a carrot soup by starting with a chicken stock and then putting some cream in and then eventually some carrots would get in. Our carrot soup is carrots and butter and a little salt and a little... Um, Baking soda. We don't actually put water in even because you don't need to. And uh, we pressure cook that and oh my god. <laughs> so if we need to make soup for Bill Gates, we'll make him the modernist cuisine carrots. Yes. So is he a picky is he I mean is he like a picky dinner guest or is he sort of a No, he's great dinner, dinner guest. All right. Cool. All right, and let's go on to our next question. Would you barbecue a clone dinosaur? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I mean, first I'd I'd make friends with them and I'd study them and I'd do everything else. Like, let's assume a sufficient population yes. that you could. Well, so I already have, in a in a sense. <laughs> this is so corny. What? So <laughs> no, it's true. Many so many years ago, okay. I read about this guy who had won the world championship of barbecue a bunch of times. A guy named John Willingham. And he had this special cooker. And so I called him up and I negotiated to buy one of his cookers. Well, it was this whole procedure. He had he interviewed me for three hours on the phone because he says, I don't sell a cooker to someone I don't like. In fact, I won't sell a cooker to most of my friends. Wow. So I eventually get him to sell me a cooker. And it comes, and I make the best ribs I've ever made, but they're not as good as his. He, he'd sent me some by FedEx of his. Of his. So I went out. And he's, I, I found this, look, John, I have to come and watch you do it because there's something I'm, like, not getting. So he says, okay, there's a little contest we're down here. Why don't you come down for that? And he was in, lived in Memphis at the time. I thought, oh, this is great. I'll go down there and I'll spend a couple hours learning that. And then maybe I'll go over to Beale Street and Graceland and then I'll go home. It'll be this little mini stopover. Well, what I didn't understand was the little contest was the World Championship of Barbecue, uh -huh. <laughs> which is this giant deal. There was 300 teams competing when I was there. And I got there and he gave me this one of the logo aprons. I said, what's this for? He says, you're on the team. It's the only way you're going to learn. <laughs> well, I worked like a dog for three days, you know, 14 hours a day. Um, I trimmed a whole uh, and trussed a whole hog. John said, Nathan, there's a hog on ice under the trailer. Would you get him up here and truss him good? So I'm up there hugging this giant dead cold pig and <laughs> – oh, my God. Well, along the way, I learned a tremendous amount. Um but they wound up putting me in charge of two of the dishes because there was like the main dishes that you compete in, which it, it – this is a, a contest called Memphis in May. And it's ribs, which is pork ribs, pork shoulder, and whole hog. Those are the main things. But then they always have two other categories. There's a category called anything but, which is anything but pork. Okay. And there's a category uh, that was a special category that year because Modena – in Italy, is the sister city of Memphis. Obviously. So a Duh. pasta company had gone and uh, had said, oh, we're going to have a pasta contest. Now, all these fabulous barbecue chefs who are incredibly accomplished, but they're also a bunch of good old boys. And like pasta like wasn't their thing. So they said, Nathan, you know how to cook pasta? I said, sure. So I did the pasta dish. And then they had decided for their anything but to cook ostrich. 
<laughs> now, ostrich is about as close to a dinosaur as you are going to find. And if you doubt that, next time you're at a zoo, look at an ostrich or an emu's feet. And they're these big, scaly feet, and they look just like a T-Rex feet. That's so um, true. And uh, the, in fact, birds, from a scientific perspective, birds are descendants of dinosaurs. And we are discovering more and more feathered dinosaurs. Um, so we thought only birds had feathers. Nope, dinosaurs had feathers too. How many um, cloned restored dinosaurs would you need to have existing in order for you to feel comfortable selecting one and killing it just to eat? Well, you don't have to select it and kill it. You could wait till it died or you could – if you have a couple kinds of dinosaurs, they may – provide you with some dead ones to <laughs> by their lonesomes. That, that, so if that you... kind of the happy family version of... Uh, uh, like farmed dinosaur. <laughs> well, the whole issue with Jurassic Park was they wanted to be free range, damn it. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> and true. free range T-Rex, not a good idea. Well, you know, you don't want to eat predators, right? Like you only want to eat herbivorous animals anyway. They have more tender meat and they have less disease things. And oh, that is such a land-based idea. As opposed to sea-based? Well, well I mean, I mean, all the fish you eat are predators, honey. That's true. Well, mullet. They're, they're mullet eat- is the only commonly eaten, eaten fish that is uh, a vegetarian. But we don't eat predator land animals. Um, in this country, we don't eat predator land animals, but in plenty of places they do. I guess that's true. Well, on that note, I'm going to say, Nathan, thank you so much for coming to the Eater Upsell Studios. I've learned a lot, and I think it's going to take me a few days to process this between all the kneading and the dinosaurs and all this all this great stuff. No, it's been great having you by the studios. Thanks for coming by. Okay. And everybody, you can pre-order your copies of Modernist Bread if you have your spare 600 or so bucks lying around, um, and it will ship at some point in 2017. Indeed. Cool. Thanks, guys. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morabito. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are.